Well, we are in the middle of John chapter 19, and we are looking at the final moments of Jesus' life. And in these, these three short verses we're looking at today, John tells us that Jesus is the climax of human history. And with this moment, what God promised in Genesis 3 to Eve, what he demonstrated in events like the Exodus, they're finished. They're completed. So we're going to pick it up with verse 28 and look at just three verses this morning. John 19, beginning with verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that though we are looking at just three short verses, they are so impactful. There is so much here that is good and not merely useful, but tells us about who you are and who we are because of Christ and his crucifixion. So I pray I'd get out of the way, and I pray your spirit would be here amongst us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear that we might see Jesus ever more clearly and see just how much you love us through him. We pray all of this in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, verse 28 begins with after this. It's worth asking after what exactly? And if you'll remember from last week, from the cross, Jesus looked at his, his mother Mary and John, who was the only disciple who followed him uh, to the cross. And he said, woman, behold your son, and in turn, behold your mother. And this was not merely uh, Jesus showing concern for his mother and taking to heart the fifth commandment, though that's clearly there. This was Jesus establishing his church from this small group of people, in particular with both Mary and John, bearing witness to Jesus' death, which makes them uh, two of the most important witnesses to Jesus Jesus would build his church. So Jesus' church is centered, it's, it's founded on his crucifixion. It's in his death that the church finds its beginning. It's in his death that the church finds its life. Soon after this moment, the remaining other 10 disciples uh, would join the small group, and by Pentecost, which was 50 days later, the church would number in the thousands. So after this moment, after the establishment of his church, Jesus knew that his earthly ministry was finished. Now think of the term finish in terms of having completed the goal. Now to the world in this moment, it looked like Jesus and his mission and his teaching and his people, that they were finished but in the sense of a failure. But from heaven's perspective, which is the one that, that matters, Jesus' earthly mission was finished in the sense that it was completed. The goal, the purpose was achieved. And soon, with his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus' work would enter actually into a much bigger and global phase. And we live in that phase right now. So Jesus, knowing that his church had been established, then says, I thirst. And John tells us that this finished scripture, 
This is the second use of that term. We already heard knowing this thing had been finished. Now he's using the exact same term again. And in whatever translation you're using, it most likely uses the term fulfill, not finished. And I think that's because it sounds more natural in English to say it that way. But the word John uses here is not the same term he uses in verse 24 where he pointed out how the soldiers dividing and casting lots for Jesus' clothes fulfilled Psalm 22, if you remember that from last week. Psalm 22 was fulfilled by the events described in verse 24 of our passage. That is, what was predicted came true. Now, of course, that same meaning, meaning is here, too. The same meaning is here, too. But I think John is after something bigger or perhaps deeper. And again, the term he uses here is the word for finished or completion. So by saying, I thirst, Jesus was finishing or completing not just Psalm 22, which, of course, he was, but I think the whole of Scripture in particular, the entire messianic hope of Scripture. So, for example, Psalm 22, like Isaiah 53, which, as you probably know, is another important messianic passage, it begins with the shame and humiliation of what we rightly interpret as the cross, but it ends with the future hope of redemption for God's people and, in fact, the whole world. John is saying, just as he did in the beginning of his gospel, that Jesus is everything that scripture looked forward to and finds its meaning, of course, but its completion in him. So how does John start his gospel? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So. What John means is that the one through whom and for whom God created the heavens and the earth is the same word found in Genesis 1. So when God speaks in Genesis 1, and Genesis 1 sees God speaking ten times, and God said, that happens ten times, that's on purpose. Just like we see with the ten commandments, the ten words, as the Hebrews thought of it, or how Psalm 19 connects God's creation of the world with his word, that is, with his commandments and his, his uh, statutes and so forth. Well, God actually speaks, this is John's point, God actually speaks, he both creates and reveals himself through his word, which John tells us is his son. The word took on flesh. So the one through whom God the Father speaks became one of us, and in turn, all of Scripture finds not just its meaning, though clearly that's, that's there, but its completion, its whole purpose is found bodily in Him. It's why Hebrews makes the argument that the priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple, and the prophets find their completion in Him. So in other words, they were like blueprints. He is the completed house. It's why John says later in chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. 
So God's word, his speaking, reveals who he is. And God has most revealed himself through the word made flesh, Jesus. So, for example, in Luke 24, on the road to uh, Emmaus, Jesus teaches two of his disciples who do not recognize him in that moment that all of Scripture is about him. And beginning with Moses, that is Genesis, and working through the prophets, he shows them exactly how that works. So it's not merely that Scripture looked forward to Jesus or predicted him. It does that. It does that. It's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. Jesus completes the word of God because he is the word of God in the flesh. So John's point is that Jesus, Jesus embodies Scripture. Scripture finds its meaning, its purpose, its fulfillment. It's everything in him, the word made flesh. It's why he is, as he claims, the way, the truth and the life. All of those things found not in some principle outside of him, but in him. He is those things, and no one comes to the Father except through him. It's why everything hangs on him. The truth of Scripture, the hope of the future, everything, your life on him. Now, we read in verse 29, that nearby, after saying this, nearby was a jar of sour wine. That kind of wine, it, there's a specific term for it that, that shows up in the Greek. It was, it was known to be very vinegary, is how one commentator put it. It, it was sh sharp. It was strong. Even bitter sometimes. So in response to his thirst, a sponge filled with the wine, that kind of wine, was put on a hyssop branch and put to Jesus' mouth. Now, as an aside, in a lot of, of Christian art, the cross, so just imagine, you've all seen pictures, uh, even, even the cross behind me, right? The way we tend to picture the cross is that it is very high or high and, and, and lifted up off the ground. But in reality, a, a high cross uh, would have meant a lot of work for a crucifixion brigade. And, and so... More often than not, a cross didn't have to be very high at all to get the job done. So more than, than likely, it was fairly easy to reach uh, Jesus' mouth with, with a branch because he was lower to the ground than we, we tend to, to imagine. So on one reading, the meaning here that John has is, is pretty obvious. Jesus was thirsty, and so his need was met by what was nearby, sour wine, sponge, and a hyssop branch. But John is indicating there's, there's much more to this because he says scripture is fulfilled. It is completed in this moment. And these details he gives us are actually incredibly important. So if you look in, in Matthew Mark's account, it is mentioned that this wine was put on a reed. That is just a small, thin branch. But John alone specifies what kind of reed it was, a hyssop branch. In Matthew, uh, in Mark's account, wine is given to Jesus after his cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which also comes directly from Psalm 22. And in all four accounts, it is highlighted that it was about the sixth hour of the day on the day of preparation for the Passover. And as we've mentioned in past weeks, this was the hour when, when people would begin to slaughter 
the lambs for the Passover meal. It was held to be a very important hour, in fact, a sacred hour. So as Israel was preparing the Passover sacrifice, Jesus was declared as Israel's king by the Roman governor, which makes it an official declaration, and in turn, he was crucified. So none of that timing is a coincidence. Neither are these, these details that, that John mentioned. So that hyssop branch, it's an important detail. Here's why. The hyssop is connected with sacrifice in general in the Old Testament, especially with the sprinkling of blood on the altar. You were specifically supposed to use a hyssop branch to put it on, on the altar. But in particular, a hyssop branch was to be used during Passover to put the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of an Israelite house. So the use of a hyssop branch intentionally echoes the Passover. John wants our minds to be ringing back to that event. In the same way that you know, any good Israelite would know six hours of the day on day of preparation, whoa, you're talking about Passover. Well, the hyssop branch is supposed to be ringing in your mind too. Well, the sour or bitter wine, again, important detail as well. So included in the celebration of the Passover was the eating of bitter herbs. God commanded this so that Israel would not forget the bitterness of her captivity in Egypt. In fact, if you go back and look at Exodus chapter 1, bitterness is an important theme of, of Israel in her slavery and under the oppression of Pharaoh was in her bitterness. And so you're supposed to, if you were partaking the Passover, eat these, these bitter herbs and remember that sin and that slavery and the oppression and the death and, and what great links God went to in order to rescue Israel from slavery and death. So this sour or bitter wine, it echoes the Passover too. John wants you to see that in his crucifixion, Jesus is a better Passover lamb, and through his death, he won't conquer a Pharaoh, but rather the one who stood behind Pharaoh and gave Pharaoh power, Satan himself. And I, I'm not going to belabor this here, but go back and listen to past sermons where we were talking about the, the importance of Christ being crucified on Golgotha and how that was pointing to uh, the, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. And whereas Passover had to be repeated every year in perpetuity, Jesus is a better Passover because he offered himself once for all. In his one-time saving act, he conquered sin and death forever. Again, Scripture does not merely look forward to Jesus. No, like what we see with the Passover and the Exodus, Jesus completes it. He completes it. It's like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Him personally. Everything God promised from Eve forward is met in Jesus. It is why after drinking the bitter wine, he says again, It is finished. The salvation that Jesus achieved on the cross is as this-worldly, that it, it, it changes everything about this world and our place in it, 
as the rescue of Israel from Egypt or Babylon was this worldly. It affected this material world. So it is not too bold a claim to say that this is the central defining event of world history. World history. It is in this moment that the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. It is in this moment that God is most fully revealed to the world through Jesus. It is in this moment that God's people are constituted in the new covenant in Jesus' blood as his church, reversing Babel and bringing together Jew and Gentile. And in turn, God's people will not be isolated to Israel, but will cover the whole earth, which is the fulfillment of the book of Isaiah. It is in this moment that humanity is reconciled to God. In Jesus, God's promises of life are found. Right there, in Jesus, you find God's yes. And as Jesus promised in John 13 through 17, which we looked at this past fall, this is the moment too, I think, at his death, when the kingdom showed up in power through the Spirit. In John 4, Jesus has an encounter with a woman at a well in Samaria, and he tells her that whoever drinks from that well that she was pulling water from will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that he will give will never be thirsty again. He says, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And of course, she wants this water, because who wouldn't? But Jesus abruptly changes the subject and and starts pushing her to the very critical issue of the Messiah. And then he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So when the Messiah comes, and the Messiah was standing right in front of her. Those who place their faith in him will thirst no more because they will have the gift of the Spirit within them. It's like the image of Psalm 1, of a, of a good tree planted beside life-giving water that grows and gives life because of that water. See, life in the kingdom of God is life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is a life united to God the Father through the Son by the work of that Spirit. It's why one of the most common ways Paul describes God's people is those who are in Christ. And he means it literally. That's not figurative language. If you are in Christ, you are indwelled by this Spirit. Well, in John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, it's actually called multiple things uh, throughout Scripture. It's, it's one of those uh, three main pilgrimage feasts that happen yearly in Jerusalem, and uh, it was a celebration, usually happening in the fall, that happened after the Day of Atonement and remembered again. It remembered the Passover and the Exodus, which was this foundational salvation event of the Old Testament. Well, Jesus stands up on the last day of that festival, and he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Consider that, whoever believes in him. 
right? And the completion of Scripture in him, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, John comments that Jesus was talking about the promised giving of the Spirit, which had not yet been given. So as we come to this last verse of our passage, I think all the same ideas are at work here. In fact, in fact I think they're finding, finding their culmination here. So clearly when John says Jesus gave up his spirit, or literally Jesus gave up or handed over the spirit, it means he died. Like with everything that had come before, Jesus was in full control of his life, including when he would die. He gave up his life. He handed over his life. He laid it down of his own accord to the Father as an atoning sacrifice. Now, just as an aside, to show you that he was actually in control of this, typically crucifixion took days to kill a person. That's why in the very next passage that we're looking at next week, the Jewish leadership asked the Romans to break the legs of the crucified men in order to speed up the process. So it wasn't uh, so much the trauma of being nailed to a cross or the blood loss that killed you, though that was clearly horrendous, so much as it was suffocation. This is the real evil of, of crucifixion. So once a man was unable to hold himself up, so you know, get the image, you're here, and you're, you're struggling to keep yourself up. Once you no longer can do that, which breaking the legs, you're now, once you can't hold yourself up anymore, you slowly suffocate to death. Well, Jesus didn't suffocate. He died of his own accord. He gave up his life because he was in full control of what he was doing. But I think John also wants us to see that with his death, Jesus ushered in the kingdom through the Spirit, just as he said he would. Now, of course, in John's account, the disciples receive the Spirit after Jesus' resurrection, when he breathes on them in that upper room. And the Spirit is poured out in mass at Pentecost in fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. Even so, I think John is intentionally here putting together John the Baptist's preaching which begins the gospel, where John the Baptist said the lamb who would take away the sins of the world, which was happening in that moment, was also the one who would baptize his people in the spirit. So Jesus, in his thirst, gave his life as a ransom for his people and in turn gave his spirit. And literally, it's he handed the spirit over so that whosoever wanted life with him may never thirst again. And it's so telling that Jesus, as we've talked about this in, in, in past weeks, that Jesus was handed over from one enemy to the next, from Judas all the way to Annas and Caiaphas and to Pilate and to the Roman soldiers who would crucify him. But in his death, he handed over the Spirit. Jesus truly loves the world and loves his enemies. So the cross, this is an obvious statement, but I think we so often, we're so used to it that we, we tend not to take it as seriously as we should. The cross is key to understanding who God is and what he wants for humanity. Everything about our faith Everything about how we are defined as a people begins, and in a certain sense, it ends with the cross. We can never grow tired of the cross. And, and I'll be, you know, honest, I've been worried about spending this much time 
uh, you know, weeks and weeks on, on just these short verses in John highlighting the cross and his death and all of it means, but we cannot grow tired of this. It's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I'm sure Paul used logic and persuasive arguments when he preached. But if you consider his preaching in Athens at the Areopagus, even as he, he quotes notable poets, he centers his preaching on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and he was mocked for it. He was ridiculed for it. He, he was basically laughed out of the building. See, the cross defies the wisdom of sinful humanity, both 2,000 years ago as much as it is today. And the temptation of every pastor is to go a different direction. It's to go away from the cross to something that feels or seems more relevant, some social topic, some whatever. But for Paul, you know, in a lot of ways, the, the apostle, he centered everything on Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, with the cross, you know, the, the unbelieving world, it just sees foolishness. This is how your God saved the world. This is the greatest story ever told. Give me a break. People thought that 2,000 years. They still think it. To the Jewish audience of Jesus' day, they saw the cross as failure and humiliation, as evidence that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. And, you know, in a lot of ways, people still do think that. Maybe most sadly, Christians who, in one breath, will say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and in the very next breath, reject everything he taught about his, how his people were to live, especially the parts about taking up a cross and following Jesus, loving your enemies, and praying for those who persecute you. So we'll take the cross very much, but we're not going to live out what Christ not merely recommends, but commands. But to those who have eyes to see, to those who have received the living water that Jesus wants to give, he wants to give it. The cross is the most remarkable thing there is. It is simultaneously horrible. It is horrific, really. And yet, beautiful. And for good reason, that ugly, horrible symbol has become one of the most beautiful symbols in the world. And people rightly wear it as jewelry. You know, it's on that beautiful, scandalous tree that every promise God has made from Genesis 3 onward finds its yes. So if you ever wondered if God is for you, if you wonder if he loves you, or cares about you, or if he even thinks about you, or wants what's best for you, look at the cross. Look at the cross, and there you will find God's heart on full display. And in the death of his son, you will find his yes to you. This is why I try and repeat as often as I can, your sin, your story, even your death is not 
the end of you. Because Jesus took it all. And on that cross, you find God's yes to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there's no God like you. None. No God who, who gives life, who gives up the life of his son so that we might be known to you, that we might have life forever with you, that we might have communion with you, that we might enjoy Eden with you forever. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for this mercy. Thank you for this love poured out for us through your Son and the power of the Spirit. We pray all of this in his name, Jesus. Amen.